this session, we're going to be addressing some questions about how to go about practicing the Trinity. And uh, I, I think perhaps a better title of it is Toward Practicing the Trinity because uh, we are uh, trying to get a, a bridge from here is the doctrine of God as Trinity to how do we go about taking and implementing that doctrine in our lives. I, I think one of the most interesting uh, things that, uh, that, that we have difficulty with is how do we go from theology to practice, theology to practice, or going from doctrine to ethics. How do we move uh, into uh, the doctrine of the Trinity being implemented in our lives? So uh, at this point, I'd like to just show you a, a, a painting from the 15th century by an Eastern Orthodox uh, monk, artist by the name of Andre Rublev, the Trinity. And this comes out of Genesis chapter 18, uh, his understanding of Genesis 18 called the hospitality of Abraham. And for many modern scholars, they look at Genesis 18 and they say to themselves, I'm not sure that's about the Trinity, but it's because uh, modern Old Testament scholarship has often uh, marked out the Trinity in their reading of the Old Testament, which I, th I think is, uh, is unfortunate. But uh, according to this artist, and I just want to point a, a few things uh, from this uh, to you, this is a painting that shows activity within God that then reaches down into activity uh, for us. You'll notice that the three, the three persons, the three angels in Genesis 18, but the three are represented in a pose of holiness, thus the halo. And so the Trinity, as you know, is the Holy Trinity. There's nothing like the Trinity on this earth in exactness. And so we have to always remember that, that God is uh, above and beyond us. Notice also there is an equality uh, and a likeness of the three. And so the three are there uh, like one another. And it's in that way, it's almost uh, as if you cannot distinguish uh, between them. And of course, this is a reflection of Hebrews chapter 1, which says that the Son is the uh, perfect image of uh, the uh, person of the Father, and of course the Spirit is also uh, the perfect uh, uh, reflection of who God is. Notice also this, the three are represented in different robes, and yet they are facing one another as well. And that facing of one another is indicative of their personhood. We know other persons by their faces, and when we are encountering other people, we see them face to face. And so the person is, to, is, is defined by our facing one another. And so they face one another, and notice also the colors of their robes differentiate them from one another. Uh, the, the, uh, the gold, of course, representing the, uh, the Father in His majesty. The green and the blue representing the fruitfulness and uh, the fluidity of the Holy Spirit. Water in Scripture is often indicative of the Holy Spirit. And of course, the red uh, representing the blood shed uh, by the Son. And so these, and of course, there's movement going on here as well. Do you notice how the Son has two fingers? representing his two natures as God and yet as human. And notice that he's pointing towards the Eucharist, towards communion, the Lord's Supper. And the water that is underneath them is representative of baptism, about which we'll uh, hear more. And so there's a lot of activity, and we haven't even gotten into the scenery of how the three encounter the people of God. Uh, and here you have the city in the background, as well as the tree, 
and uh, bringing us back to Genesis chapter 18. So that's just a, a little warmer from Christian art that I think can be helpful. So what I'd like to do at this point, in order to help us to move from what uh, Pastor Matt Sanders was talking about, that God is Trinity and that this means who He is, is who we are going to worship, but we are created in His image, and therefore, being created in His image, we must reflect God as Trinity in important ways. So let me uh, take you to our outline, what I'd like to look at over the next 40 minutes or so. We'll look at a basic definition of the Trinity, the order of theology, and this may be the most important uh, thing that we say, the, how do we go about uh, engaging, moving from theology to exegesis or to uh, ethics. The third thing is I'd like to uh, give us some of the results of Trinitarian exegesis, uh, the history of theological construction. This will be fun. You'll be able to see how uh, many people have ended up being heretics because they weren't careful as they were trying to move uh, from uh, divine revelation to understanding and enacting divine revelation. And then we'll look at some systematic conclusions, uh, a couple of recent challenges to orthodoxy, and finally, uh, some practical implications for today. Really an introduction at that end of uh, this session to prepare you for some of the things that we'll be uh, looking at tomorrow. So here's a basic definition from the Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church. Now, as an Oxonian, rather than from St. Andrews or Baylor or Southeastern Seminary, I felt like this would be a good place to get an orthodox definition of the doctrine of the Trinity. But uh, it is a good definition. It, 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 the dictionary defines the Trinity as the central dogma of Christian theology. That is that the one God exists in three persons and one substance. Three persons, one substance. This doctrine, moreover, and I like how this is said, this doctrine is held to be a mystery in the strict sense. I like that part of the definition. Because if you think that you've got your mind around the Trinity, you don't. A bit of a mystery there always for us. In that it can neither be known by unaided human reason apart from revelation, nor cogently demonstrated by reason after it has been revealed. Just a reminder that our minds will never grasp God in his totality. The next point I'd like to look at is the order of theology. And when I say the order of theology, what I'm, in the, what I'm talking about is how do we go about moving from the revelation of who God is to living out the truth of who God is. The basic issue behind an orthodox theological method is remembering that we necessarily move from divine grace to human response divine grace to human response. In theological construction, we begin with God's revelation of himself. We proceed to biblical exegesis, trying to understand what God has revealed of himself. Along with, and at the same time, we're getting echoes, if you will, reflections of God in general revelation, that is in nature and the human conscience and so on. And then we begin to try to put that together, and with the church, and I don't think theology is ever done rightly by the scholar on his or her own, uh, but with the church, we try to move towards a proper understanding of who God is as Trinity, and then, and only then, uh, do we engage in the ethical practice of our doctrines in the church, the family, and the world. Now, I use those three forms which are the three basic uh, covenants that we engage in in human life. We are located, first of all, in family, but also in the world, which is in society, uh, and then if we're believers within the church. And those are the three basic communities that, that form our whole lives, but we'll get into that a little more. Now, one of the most important theological moves, by the way, occurs in the book of Genesis. Uh, I think if you could get a handle on Genesis chapters 1 through 3, 
you're going to get a whole lot of good theology already there. You'll remember we're first introduced to God in the very first verses of the Bible. Genesis meaning beginnings. It's the first book of the Bible. In chapter 1, in verses 1 through 3, we are already introduced to God and there are indications that the Trinity is revealed that early. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit hovered over the chaos, let's put it, the darkness, the waters. And then God said, and so God speaking or God's Word is a reference in the New Testament to the Son of God. So you have God, Spirit, and Word already in the first three verses of the Bible. And so we're first introduced to God who simply is and who has from the very beginning an implicitly Trinitarian economy. Economy meaning how does God works? How does God work? God always works as Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And then later, you remember this, God is creating in verses 1 through 3. That's the primal reality. And it's only later on the sixth day that humanity is created. So we have to remember this. God comes first, we come later. That seems pretty simple. But because of that sense of uh, self selfishness that we have that Pastor Matt was referring to earlier, we often think it's about us. I, I think one of the most important things you can engage in as a Christian is to tell yourself constantly, it's not all about me. And it's not. It's not all about us. It's not all about me. It's about God himself, and we have a loving God who includes us, and that's the beauty of what he's doing. Now, when you get to chapter 3 and verse 5, we have our first theological conversation. And it's going on between Eve and, yes, Adam's there too, Eve and, in particular, uh, we have the serpent. And we've got a bad conversation about theology. Sometimes you can have a conversation about theology with the wrong person. And in this case, the, the conversation went really bad. You see, the root temptation in that first sin, that original sin, was to be even more like God than humanity already was. And Satan said, you, you know, God just doesn't want you to be like him. And that's why, you, that's why he doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, you know what's just crazy about the serpent's statement? We were created in the image of God, in the likeness of God. We're already like God. So it's like the serpent's telling us he just doesn't want you to be even more like him. And yet, Scripture is pretty clear that we're like him. I think the root temptation is that idea that somehow we can be God. And that's what the serpent wanted, and the serpent wanted us to be like that. And I think, I'll be honest with you, I think when we're talking about the Trinity, we have to remember that the standing temptation of a human being is to redefine God in our own image. Because we want to be God, but we're not. When I was a, a, a seminary student at Southwestern Seminary, uh, about, about the same time, well, maybe I was a few years before Pastor Matt, but it was a long time ago. Uh, but I had a preaching professor, and, and he told us, in the classroom one day, and I'll never forget this. He said, there are two truths that you need to always remember. Number one, there is a God. Number two, you're not him. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Because I think the root temptation is for us to grasp at being God rather than letting God be God. So, with that in mind, I want you to notice some, uh, some truths that we need to get out of uh, this idea of how theology is ordered. First of all, God has the priority. Theology always has the priority. Who God is always has the priority, and that means His revelation of Himself is the priority in our understanding of who God is, of who we are, and of how we ought to act. 
So theology has the priority. Anthropology, looking at humanity, is derivative. We, uh, we ourselves are made in his image. So he gives the definition, and then we are the reflection. That's hard to do because we want to make God a reflection of us, and that's part of our original sin, is to try to refashion God to make him like we want him to be. But in actuality, we're made in his image. He is not made in our image. And that's a, that's a, that's a fundamental mistake that we make and we've got to be care, uh, careful about. The root sin is to place ourselves above God. To replace, if you will, in theological language, we try to place anthropology above theology. No, no, no. God first, a second. Okay? All right, let's look at some results of uh, Trinitarian exegesis. From the many Trinitarian texts, and, and here I'd just like to just throw the fruits of so much Trinitarian exegesis of Scripture at you and just, just kind of give it to you as a summary. Uh, first of all, uh, there are Old Testament texts which indicate that God is to be seen as a simple divine unity. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 4 and 5 are very clear uh, that the Lord our God, the Lord alone, the, the one Lord. There's only one Lord. Let's just settle that. No other God. You are to have no other gods before me. In other words, there is no other God. There is one God. Secondly, there are a number of Old Testament texts which imply a plurality within the Godhead. We've already seen this in Genesis chapter 18. You've already seen this in Genesis chapter 1. There are hints in the Old Testament that God is simple and one, and yet there is a plurality within God without violating that simplicity uh, you see this, uh, for instance, um, in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord. So you have the Lord speaking to the Lord. Oh, there, and there are so many others. You have in the Old Testament, remember in Proverbs chapter 8, how wisdom says that uh, before all things were created, wisdom was with God. Or how the Spirit of God is there in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, even before anything is spoken into existence. And there are so many. The, the angel of the Lord text, we could spend hours just going through the Old Testament text that, that indicate not just a, a simple unity, but a plurality within the Godhead. When you get to the New Testament, oh, the Trinity is not implied it's absolutely explicit. There are New Testament texts which indicate divine unity in the Father. There is one Lord. Uh, this is uh, uh, something you can find in a number of places. Uh, New Testament texts also indicate the Son is a divine person. We recognize that the Son says, the Father has sent me. Read the Gospel of John. It makes it so clear. The Father has sent me, and he is returning to the Father. And so the Son is distinct from the Father. Or remember at the baptism of Jesus, the, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. So this is God the Father speaking of his Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And moreover, to get to our next point, the Spirit descends in the form of a dove from heaven upon the Son. So you have all three persons indicated there. And so there are New Testament texts that indicate the Spirit is a divine person. Uh, you remember that first major sin in the church of Jerusalem where you have Ananias and Sapphira that hold back and then lie about what they've given. And, uh, and, and it's, they've They've sinned against the Holy Spirit, but Peter says, you've not sinned against man, you've sinned against God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is God. I mean, there are so many texts like that. And so the Spirit is a divine person with divine agency, but there are also New Testament texts which indicate a threefold unity. The baptism that you experience when you become a believer at the command of Jesus to baptize in the name, singular, 
of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So you have a a unity in the singularity of the divine identity of the name, and yet you have a threefold name. There are New Testament texts which indicate the eternal origins of relation, the generation of the Son, or the begottenness would be another way to say that. He is the only begotten Son, or He is the eternally begotten God, as as John 1, 18 says, who is in the bosom of the Father. That's close. When you're in the bosom of the Father, that's a close relationship, is it not? And so there's a, a relationship of the Son being the Son. He is begotten of the Father. And the Spirit, John 15, 26, says that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. This is the relationship of the Spirit to the Father is one of procession, and of course, also the Son. So that's just quick biblical exegesis boiled down to some basic statements about the Trinity. Now, Pastor Matt said we shouldn't do that that quickly. But for the sake of time, we're just going to do that that quickly. There is a a free book outside if you can work your way through it on God the Trinity. And trust me, all of this that we've concluded is in that book. And it's because it gets it from the book, which is the Bible. And you can look it up there. Next, let's look at the history of theology. Now, the early church wrestled with two major doctrines which left a standing legacy which Orthodox believers of every denomination respect as fundamental to the faith. Uh, The Trinity and Christology, or as Pastor Matt said, the Trinity and the Gospel. And I I absolutely agree with him. These two doctrines are what differentiate Christianity from anything else. And they are fundamental. If you don't hold to Trinity, if you don't hold to Christ and his gospel, you're not a Christian. This This is the biblical faith, Trinity and Christ. And the conclusions of the early church about the rule of faith, about what we believe about Trinity and gospel, were summarized in the ecumenical creeds of Nicaea and Chalcedon, as well as the Apostles' Creed and the Athanasian Creed. Um, And I'm going to be showing uh, one of those creeds to you in my next uh, session. Now, the early theologians, as they're struggling with Scripture to understand who is this God in whose name I'm being baptized, who is Christ, and how does he save us, they're asking these important questions, and they looked for ways to discern the special revelation of God in Scripture. And uh, let's look at the next slide. The premier teachers of Christian orthodoxy in the early church they dwelt upon the exegesis of Scripture. And if you'll read uh, uh, people like Gregory of Nazianzus and Athanasius, Gregory of Nyssa and Augustine, they are deep into Scripture. And how do we interpret Scripture to know who is this God that we are worshiping? And they detected certain necessary interpretive rules, hermeneutical moves for a proper theological reading of Scripture. And we may describe these hermeneutical rules with the names of personal exegesis. There's another term, but I'm just going to use personal because that's pretty simple to understand. And partitive exegesis. Now, personal exegesis uh, is uh, what I'd like to look at at this point. Go ahead and advance the slide. Uh, So these are the church fathers' hermeneutical rules. Personal exegesis asks the question, which divine person speaks or acts regarding another divine person. For instance, what did Jesus mean when he referred back to Psalm 110 and said, who was speaking to whom when the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I have your enemies subdued before your footstool. Who is the Lord speaking to the Lord? They couldn't answer him. Why? Because they didn't understand or didn't believe what he had been trying to tell them, that he himself is the Lord, the Son of God, who has come from the Lord, who is God the Father. Or who is, in Daniel chapter 7, who is the Son of Man who approaches the Ancient of Days to receive an eternal kingdom? 
So personal exegesis is asking who in the Godhead is speaking to whom. Notice the correct English there, by the way. <laughs> or who generates whom in John 1.18? He is the only begotten God from the bosom of the Father. Who proceeds from whom in John 15.26? And who is praying, as Pastor Matt said earlier, to whom in John 17? I mean, in John 17, verse 5, uh, think about it. Uh, the, the son says, you know, I, I uh, well, let's go to John 17. You, you've got to read this. John 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Think about that. Jesus, a man, is saying, in his prayer to the Father, this person praying to this person, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Which tells us that he was with the Father before creation. He has come into the world. And now through the cross, and by the way, the cross is the high point of the glory of his ministry. Through the cross, he is returning to the glory that he had with the Father before the world existed. When you begin to ask those questions, who is speaking to whom? And how, do this how does this person relate to that person and that person? All of a sudden, the Trinity begins to impose itself upon you from a very plain reading of the biblical text. Well, that's personal exegesis. What about partitive exegesis? Well, this asks the question, to which of the two natures shall we ascribe a property or act of Christ while not dividing his person? There's only one Jesus Christ. So you can't divide him. There's not Jesus and Christ. There is Jesus Christ, who also happens to be the Son of the living God, who is the Lord, who is God himself, who is the King of all creation. These are, we're not talking about five, six, seven, eight different people. These are different titles to describe one person. And why do we need so many titles and so many more titles? Because he's so profound that our minds can't even wrap themselves around how glorious he is. But with this one person, we know there are two natures. So we can't divide his person, but we need to recognize that he is God come in the flesh. He is the only begotten God who has been born a human being, born of the Virgin Mary, who received his nature, human nature, through the Spirit's conception in Mary, and yet he never lost his deity. For instance, when you're thinking about how is it that I interpret this text and this text, any text that refers to the perfection and the eternity of Jesus Christ is a reference to his deity. Any text that refers to his weakness, Jesus wept. Jesus was tired. Jesus died. That's a reference to his humanity. You can never say that God died, and yet Jesus Christ is fully God. That is a reference to his human nature. And so when you're thinking of part of the exegesis, you have to ask, is this a reference to his human nature, or is this a reference to his divine nature? Let me give you some examples. How can we say, according to Luke chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom? How do you compare that with 1 Corinthians 1.24, which says that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God? Well, now, he is the wisdom of God, and if he's the wisdom of God, he's perfect wisdom, he doesn't increase at all. And yet here it says that he increased in wisdom. That increase in wisdom is a reference to his humanity, while the fact that he is the perfect wisdom of God is a reference to his deity. Or here's another example. 
Did the divine nature die on the cross? No. So we confine the death to the human nature while not violating the unity of his person. Christ died on the cross, but his deity didn't die. One of the most difficult questions, and I think that's the most difficult question, and Dr. Thornton may disagree with me because she's a very smart theologian, but I think for me the most difficult question in systematic theology is how do you, how do you keep the unity of the person of Christ on the cross? And I think it is that, the, that, that on the cross, God in Christ took death into himself. He swallowed death and spit back life. He transforms death itself into life because he's God and he can do that. Or this question, what does Christ know and when does he know it? And we're not talking about Watergate. He had no need for men to tell him what was in their hearts. How can he know what's in all human hearts? Well, he's human, but he's the perfect human and he's God. So he knows everything. And yet in Mark 13, 32, we we read that he did not know the exact time of the eschatological plan of the Father for the Son to return. He didn't know in his humanity. He does know in his deity. And so you have to uh, engage in this partitive exegesis. Of course, taking all this together, we know that doctrine must be preached. So preachers have also, throughout history, looked for ways uh, to teach the Trinity from general revelation and creation. But this effort is fraught with significant dangers. For instance, with regard to the Trinity in general revelation, uh, theologians have often spoke of the vestiges of the Trinity. Can you see vestiges of the Trinity in creation? Now, there are some positive affirmations in church history. Many theologians in the early church and the medieval theologians looked for marks of the Trinity, vestiges of the Trinity in the created order. And they were kept from error, by the way, by the rule of faith, which is found uh, basically in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. But Karl Barth, a great theologian in the 20th century, perhaps the most well-known theologian in the 20th century, objected to the idea that you can find vestiges of God in creation. He said, when you do this, you reduce God to creatureliness, and in consequence, we should not reduce God to illustrations of God. Now, who's right, Augustine and the Cappadocian Fathers or Karl Barth? Actually, I think they both have something to teach us. Uh, The one says, yes, God has left evidence of himself, especially in humanity, because we're created in his image. But with Bart, we've got to agree, don't take your ideas and force them on God. And I think that, that we've got to be careful when we think about especially illustrations. So uh, think of some common illustrations of the Trinity. Go ahead and advance to the next slide, please. So uh, Tertullian loved natural analogies for the Trinity. He talked about uh, the root, the tree, and the fruit. And so he compares this to the Trinity, root, tree, and fruit. Or a fountain coming out of a, a hillside, flowing into a stream, and then into a lake. So he's looking at nature, and he says, oh, we've got Trinity there. And of course, you know, in our age, I hear them all the time. I hear all sorts of explanations of the Trinity. It's like water in, you know, in, at different temperatures, right? So you've got water that's in a gaseous state, you've got water in a liquid state, and you've got water in a frozen or a solid state. But you know what? Every time you come up with a natural analogy and you push it just a little far, you end up with a heresy. You really do. It's just inevitable. Augustine had his psychological analogies. He, he said that the, the Trinity is like the human memory, which is the Father, the understanding, which is the Son, and the will, which is the Holy Spirit. 
or remembering, knowing, and loving. Of course, what's the difficulty with these psychological analogies? Really, you only have one person doing three things, so you can end up as a Unitarian heretic if you take that too far. Or uh, my favorite were the Cappadocian fathers, and they loved their social analogies. Adam, Eve, and Seth. That's what one of them said the Trinity was like. Or like the three leading apostles, Peter, James, and John. Or Augustine, uh, the Trinity is the lover, the father, the beloved, the son, and the love between the father and the son, the Holy Spirit. And by the way, all of these have something to teach us and can help us to get an idea of the Trinity, but each one of these can end up in an error when we push them too far. Another commercial break with a little illustration here. This, by the way, is an attempt, and it's a very common attempt in the, uh, in the late medieval and into the Renaissance period of picturing the Trinity. You have the Father with the dead Christ and the Spirit who's maintaining the unity of the Trinity. It's a, it's a beautiful painting and an attempt to try to get uh, to an understanding of the Trinity. Now, let me say this before we go any further, and go ahead and advance the slide. Uh, there are three primary forms of heresy in Christian history that have come about. One is modalism, also called Sibelianism. And in modalism, they retain the unity. It's emphatic about the unity of God, but it retains the unity of God by redefining the threeness. It makes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit essentially indistinct from one another. So the God of modalism is really one person who is revealing himself in three different modes or manners, usually related to an epoch in time. And modalism affirms the economic trinity, but it denies that eternally God is three persons, and it just focuses on the unity. The problem with this, as Tertullian pointed out, uh, is that if you have that, you end up crucifying the Father on the cross. Not a good idea. Another heresy is Unitarianism or subordinationism. Uh, And this heresy magnifies the godhood of the Father at the expense of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, by the way, there are different understandings of subordinationism, but this is ontological subordinationism taken to the extreme. And it makes the Son and the Holy Spirit less than God or demigods, less God than God the Father. Arius made Christ a demigod. He said there was a time when Christ was not. Now, he didn't deny that the Son should be worshipped. Rather, he said the Son is essentially less than the Father. And Arius gives popular form to the heresy of subordinationism. And I just want us to be careful not to reduce the Son and the Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit Three persons, one God, equality, all three sharing in the eternal perfections of God. The third form of heresy in Christian history is tritheism. And this so emphasizes the three that you end up losing the unity. Mormons, by the way, believe that Jesus is a God, and you can be a God too, if you're not females. Sorry, ladies. Another reason why Mormonism isn't true. Well, let's look at some systematic conclusions. I think we need to recognize that the Trinity is unique and without parallel. Various attempts to define God have resulted in heresy. However, we must still seek to understand and teach God as Trinity. For He has revealed Himself as such. If He commands you to be baptized in the threefold name, there's your doctrine of the Trinity. You've got to somehow get your mind around who this God is. And And if you're a teacher, you've got to teach the Trinity. And when trying to teach the Trinity, we must affirm both the transcendence of God and the limitations of humanity. God is God. 
And our limits, our limits below God are both natural and sinful. We each have the natural limit of being a creature. We're not God. We're never going to comprehend. God is so great that we'll never get our mind around God, even as we come to know Him more and more throughout eternity. So we've got a natural limit of being a creature, but we've also got another problem. Not only are we limited in our knowledge, we each have the additional limit of our sinfulness. What do we do with the knowledge of God because we're sinners? We distort God in our minds. So we've got to be very careful. Uh, By the way, there was a theologian by the name of uh, Gregory who fought against uh, a group known as the Eunomians who were making claims about the Trinity without respect for God. And Gregory said the teaching of the central Christian truth of the Trinity must be restricted to those who are being sanctified. I thought, uh, the first time I read that, I'm like, how can you restrict the teaching? But his point is this, you, when you are considering the Trinity yourself as a teacher, when you are teaching it to others, you need to make sure that every person there recognizes that we're dealing with a transcendent mystery and that we are sinners who must be purified by the blood of Jesus Christ in order to even properly think of God. Gregory, by the way, led the Council of Constantinople, which gave us the form of the Nicene Creed, which is still widely used today in, in Christian churches. He wrote this in his 27th oration, his first theological oration. He said, Not to everyone, my friends, does it belong to philosophize about God. Not to everyone. The subject, the subject of God, is not so cheap and low. And I will add, not before every audience, nor at all times, nor on all points, but on certain occasions and before certain persons and, and within certain limits. And he went on to say this, not to all men because it is permitted only to those who have been examined and are deemed masters in meditation and who have been previously purified in soul and body or are at the very least being purified. For the impure to touch the pure is, we may safely say, not safe, just as it is unsafe to fix weak eyes upon the sun's rays. Just as you go and, and if you see the sun, you don't look directly into it. We need to understand our God is so bright that we've got to be careful when we're looking at him. And the only way that we can even begin to look at it, the reflection of him is if we are being purified in our hearts, our minds, our souls. And that is the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. You know, human analogies and illustrations, they ultimately fail and they border on heresy when they're taken to their extremes. One may wish to use various illustrations to avoid a favored human analogy becoming a heresy. I think the temptation that is ever before us is to take some truth from the world or from our own personal worldview or experience and then impose that limited and flawed perception upon God. And I've got to tell you this, that's a temptation that, that those of us who have been studying the Trinity our whole lives are, are, are careful to make sure that we don't take some favored and impose it upon the Trinity. We've got to get and go back and get our doctrine from Scripture again and again and again to make sure that the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, is cleansing our hearts and our minds so that we can see God correctly. After all, the ultimate point is not to come to a full understanding of God as Trinity. You and I never will do that. But the point is is that we worship God as Trinity, entering His divine life by grace. Which brings us to these conclusions. I think there are seven systematic truths about the Trinity derived from scriptural exegesis. And you can see these in the back of my book uh, there uh, if you want a copy. Uh, But uh, unique devotion to God. We are to be 
in our hearts totally devoted to God. We worship Him and Him alone. But secondly, there is a difference in our minds, at least, between who God is within Himself and how He acts toward us, the imminent trinity and the economic trinity. Third, we need to recognize the threefold relations of God. God the Father is not begotten, and He doesn't proceed. And the, the, the Son is begotten of the Father, and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. There's threefold relations. And moreover, because of those relations, and if you'll go back and engage in that personal exegesis and see how the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to one another, there is this eternal perichoresis, this eternal movement between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father is in me, Christ said, and I am in the Father. So that, that movement eternally with one another, which indicates that when God operates, when He works, He always works as one. Who saves you, the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, you're saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Excuse me, Siri. You're saved by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you're not saved by one versus the other. You're saved by all three as one. But there's also this truth. You come to the Father through the Spirit in the Son. And therefore, there is a sense of order. The Father begets the Son. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. So there is a sense of order in the Trinity at the same time that there's a unity and an equality in the Trinity. For us, there's either order or equality. For Scripture, it tells us that there is both order and equality in the Trinity. Which brings us to the proper operations. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. The Son dies on the cross. The Spirit raises the Son from the dead. This, this is a series of truths that even though every member of the Trinity is involved in the atonement, it is only Christ who dies on the cross. And so all three persons involved in all the divine works at the same time that there is a distinction between the three persons. This brings us to my last major point. And that is there have been recent challenges to orthodoxy. Uh, two major challenges to traditional Christian orthodoxy have arisen in the last 50 years. And I've had the privilege of knowing the major proponents of both of these opposing errors. While I appreciate both men, I must register a disagreement with their Trinitarian errors, which I think come out of their lack of uh, understanding that they have not put up sufficient safeguards to making sure that they don't impose their own ideas on the Trinity. But these errors arose in the context of allowing their understandable human responses to general revelation to shape inappropriately their responses to special revelation. Jürgen Moltmann, your pastor here at this church, uh, wrote his dissertation in part on Moltmann, and he can tell you much more than I can. But Moltmann had this egalitarianism that he wanted to bring forward, and it came out of his experience in being in World War II. And in that war, uh, he, as a youth, had been forcibly brought in, into Hitler's armies, and he had watched his friends die. And so he had, a, and properly, a strongly negative reaction against uh, any type of hierarchy against tyranny. And so he wanted to make sure that human beings operated in a democratic way. And when he looked at the three persons of the Godhead, he saw equality, a radical equality. And of course, this leads into certain liberation theologies, which are all about a radical equality. Well, I think he went too far. As a matter of fact, Alan Torrance uh, accused him of uh, touching upon tritheism, one of the uh, theological heres because, heresies because of this. But another one is Wayne Grudem, who in his doctrine of eternal functional subordination 
wants to protect uh, against what he sees as radical feminism, and he does this by making the son less than the father eternally in his functioning, in his authority. Now, both men would claim to be orthodox, even Nicene, but I think because of their own emphases and what they're reacting against, they often go off the edge one way or another. One into radical egalitarianism, the other into a strict hierarchy. And if you'll go back and look at those systematic conclusions, what you'll see is that the Trinity, we've got to keep both the order and the equality without losing either one. And so I would just encourage us, as you and I consider the Trinity, we don't impose our ideas. And that's easy to do, especially when you're trying to move from the doctrine of the Trinity to practicing the Trinity. You always go back to Scripture. Which brings us to my last point. There are practical implications for today. There are implications in our society. After all, we worship a God who is three and yet one, has equality and yet order. And therefore, in our society, we have unity and yet multiplicity. We have order and yet equality. And the question is, is how do we who are made in the image of God properly reflect who God is? There are implications for church and discipleship. How is it that we are to take our baptismal vows and enact them as we are made in the image of Christ anew, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit? Uh, this, these are questions that should shape our discipleship. There are implications for marriage relations. Look at this last illustration, if you will. How is it that we ought to understand. If we're, and, and if you look at Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God made the man and the woman in his image, male and female he made them. In other words, in that marriage relationship, somehow there's actually a reflection of the Trinity. How do we understand this? How does this come about? What does this say about single people? We have to be very careful not to impose ideas but to get our ideas from the totality of Scripture and from the individual texts themselves. But there are implications for marriage relations. There are implications for Christian unity. Listen, let me say this as a lifelong Baptist. I can assure you that there are Christians other than Baptists. (laughs) And you know what? We need to learn how to unite with one another, even when we are not exactly of the same denomination. Because we have one God, who is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And there are many denominations who belong to Him strictly by grace. There are implications for proclamation. Proclamation in the context of the church worship, and proclamation in the sense of missions and evangelism. And we're going to hear more about both of those. And finally, there are implications for worship. If God is Trinity, then we have to worship Him as Trinity. Too often, we end up worshiping one God without remembering that He is Trinity. So how do we worship God as Trinity?